The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The message today is entitled, Freedom is Not Free. Almighty God, show us the cost of freedom today. That we could all be free in you. Filled with your spirit. Walking in the way of holiness victorious, not cast down, but lifted up by your Spirit, empowered by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord. I pray in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Freedom is not free. It requires the shedding of blood. We know that as Americans, and we honor today those who have fallen and those who have served at great personal price and cost. We see in America that our freedom is being removed. Day by day, freedom is being stripped from America, and we are becoming a prison house. We know this is only looking forward to the coming of Antichrist, the mark of the beast, and finally the victory of Jesus as he comes and restores everything, calls his people home. Freedom in Jesus Christ is not free. It will cost you everything. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And where was he going? To Golgotha, to be crucified. There is no freedom without the shedding of blood. I want to talk with you about the early church and about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about it because in my heart, as I've been waiting before the Lord, I've heard over and over this week that the will of the Father is to restore to us the apostolic church. He wants us to become like the New Testament church. This will not be free. It will cost us everything. Last night, I was just ready to go upstairs to bed. It was about 10 after 10. And my doorbell rang. It was a precious Christian family that I hadn't seen in some time. 
I invited them to come in. I turned the lights all back on. We began to talk about about Jesus. And they were very interested in the book Pilgrim's Progress. And they wanted to see the edition that I've been using on the radio. And so I shared that with them. One of the daughters, just finishing the 10th grade, she said, I know I'm saved. And mom spoke up and said, on what basis do you know you're saved? Of course, that question comes right out of Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, Christian asked ignorance that question. She replied, I know I'm saved because Jesus loves me. And again, Mama said, On what basis do you believe Jesus loves you? Her answer, I came into the house from school today, and on the table, there was my brother's taco, and I didn't grab it and eat it. She said, I knew that would have been wrong, and my brother would have been angry with me. So I know I'm saved. I spoke up and I said, My dear, what you have just shared is not a basis for believing that you are saved. We're not saved by good works. Mama spoke up and she said, No. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. I said, yes. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. It's a work of grace. It's a gift. It is free to us. And then the daughter quickly changed the subject. And she began to talk about, I wanted to come see you tonight because... My brother had a friend over, and he's the coolest guy. And for the next 20 minutes, she just gushed out about this handsome young man that isn't paying her any attention, and how she's trying to connive to get his attention. I sat there almost in tears, saying, She is the church. Believing that she can do a few good things, she can obey God a few times and feel really proud about accomplishing a few things that God wants her to do. And then her heart overflows with foolishness about a worldly guy. I finally got a question in. I said, is he a Christian? Oh, I don't think so. Her heart was overflowing. It was absorbing her. All she could think about was 
this guy and how handsome he was and how many push-ups he could do. He can do 100 push-ups. She's excited. I said, Lord, this sounds like your church. We can do a few good things. We can say, look, I'm a good person. Jesus loves me. And then our focus turns to the world and to all the busyness of the world and all the stuff of the world. And we say, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Now, please, if you're going to understand what I'm going to say to you now about the early church and about the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to know that it's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that begins to cut through all the foolishness and get right down to the heart of the matter, which is there has to be a major change in us if the Holy Spirit is going to come and restore his people. I attended this week a Holy Spirit conference. It was three nights. The whole focus of this Holy Spirit conference was moving into the supernatural, learning how to function in the supernatural. That sounds wonderful. The problem is he was speaking about the techniques for stepping into the Holy Spirit. He was speaking about how you have to exercise faith this way and the Spirit comes this way and then you proclaim and you impart and you do and on and on the list went. You know what? The Holy Spirit does not come by technique. The Holy Spirit will only come to us through repentance and conviction of sin. The sign of the Holy Spirit is conviction of sin in our hearts. And if we push that conviction away and we say, I don't want to be convicted. Well, I'll tell you. I finally stopped this young lady's rant about this young man. And I said, could I speak to you seriously about sin? And she literally brought her fingers up and plugged her ears and said, please don't, Pastor. It will disturb me. And I won't be able to sleep tonight. I don't want you to talk to me about sin. Sin is the issue. Sin is the issue. Jesus died on the cross because of sin. And if we push away the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, if we push it away by quickly going to something that will numb us out, like the television or music, if we push it away by quickly going to talk with someone, if we push it away by saying, let's go to Georgetown tonight, One young man said to me on Friday as I spoke with him about his sin. 
He said, tonight, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to go to Georgetown. I'm going to have a few drinks, but I'm going to be righteous before God. I said, no, you're not. You're going to go to Georgetown. You're going to have a few drinks. You're going to meet somebody down there that looks attractive to you. And you're going to have a one night stand. And you may get AIDS. Let's be honest. You can't play with God. You can't play with sin. It's serious. If we push away the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we refuse to allow it to penetrate into our hearts so that we weep over our sin. If we maintain our righteousness because we've not stolen somebody's taco, we're in trouble. If we have some manner of establishing our righteousness so that we're comfortable... So that we say, oh, I'm okay. Look, I've done this and this. And Jesus loves me, so everything's okay. And we push away the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. There's no hope for us. Now I say this to you, including myself. Because I don't have the New Testament apostolic Pentecost in my life. I'm not going to be satisfied until I do. I'm not going to back away. I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to struggle with it. Because I don't believe the church as we experience it today is what God had in mind for us. I think the New Testament church is the model that he wanted to establish, and it was to continue through the ages until the coming of Jesus. So let's talk about this New Testament church. Pentecost simply means penta, 50. 50 days after the Feast of Weeks. That's Pentecost. Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was established by the Jewish people to commemorate the giving of the Ten Commandments. It was the joy of the law. So it was not accidental that Jesus chose Pentecost to send the Holy Spirit to replace the love for the law with the love of the Holy Spirit. Because as New Testament Christians, we are released from the law and we live under the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that we will be able to give a confession that says, nothing that I do, nowhere that I go, every ounce of my energy is given under the power of the Holy Spirit. My time, my money, my energy is given under the power of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the whole outline of the New Testament church. Now, most of us have spent most of our lives trying to build something that the Holy Spirit never called us to build. 
going places the Holy Spirit never called us to go, and doing things the Holy Spirit never had in mind for us to do. And so people say to me, Pastor, how do I hear the Holy Spirit? How do I know what God's will is for my life? Well, the answer is very simple. God doesn't talk when that wholehearted commitment is not there, when our lives are not utterly given over to Christ and we've been crucified with Him, He's not going to send the Holy Spirit to begin to order our steps and direct our path, except He will send His Holy Spirit to us to begin to grow a conviction of sin in our hearts. And if we're honest with one another today, that's where we're at. We need the Holy Spirit to come for most of us and grow a conviction of sin in our hearts so that we see the difference between the way we function in the world and the way he's calling us to walk with him in the spirit. Now you can go to church from now until the end of the world. You can say I'm saved. You can claim to be a Christian. But as John Bunyan writes in the final chapter of Pilgrim's Progress, there is an entrance to hell right beside the celestial city's gates. And all who have not gone through the narrow gate and have not been crucified with Christ, not been born again in the Spirit, will be cast into that entrance into hell. So we come to Pentecost. The disciples are all gathered praying. Did you know they could have been fishing? They could have been doing many other things, but the Holy Spirit called them to stop fishing and to come together and pray. Now that doesn't mean we're supposed to all stop working and come together and pray. We're to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. He's going to do it differently now than he did it at Pentecost. He did it differently with Cornelius than he did with Pentecost. You realize that Cornelius' life was a second Pentecost. It was the Gentile Pentecost. And all he did was call for Peter to come. Peter came and began to preach. And as Peter preached to him, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them. They were all in one room together. And suddenly there was the sound of a mighty wind blowing. It was heard outside. It was heard inside. Tongues of fire came and settled over each person in the, on the congregation. Tongues of fire above them. And then the explosive rejoicing as the Holy Spirit entered and took possession of each life. Shouting. They could not contain themselves. They ran outside the building. People were coming from all over because they heard this tremendous wind blowing, but nothing was being destroyed. They came running to see what was happening. And they heard in their own language, the disciples and the others in that congregation proclaiming the glory of Jesus and the glory of God. They each heard in their own language. 
I want to share with you then what happened. It's found in the book of Acts. I'll begin with verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's quoting a prophecy from Joel. And he's saying this applies today to what you have happening in Pentecost. But I want to say very clearly to you, this prophecy was more for today than it was for Pentecost. Because he's describing now the, the signs in the heaven above, the signs on the earth below, the blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. There's only one way scientifically that can happen. And we are right on the verge of this taking place. Scientists today are saying that there is a possibility of so many sunspots at one time that if that occurs, you will look at the sun and it will be dark with small pinpoints of light as though you were looking through a heavy black cloth and you just see tiny spots of light because these sunspots will be so numerous and that when this happens, the moon will look like blood. I listened to a physicist last night as he described the possibility of this occurring, saying there is a very high probability of this taking place fairly soon. He also went on to say that the earth is expanding. And this is causing sinkholes all over the world in a way that has never before occurred. It's also causing plate shifts. It's causing earthquakes. And it's causing the ring of fire to come alive. Now, all of these are utterly life-threatening to us on this planet. And if you read the signs in Matthew 24 looking at what will happen just before Jesus comes, we're seeing this literally fulfilled in science today. And then we look at what's happening financially with Greece almost assuredly going to be leaving the European Union. And the impact financially that will have on America will be utterly devastating it won't just be Greece. It will probably also be 
Italy, Spain, Portugal. Their economies are crashing. And frankly, their economy is no worse than America's economy. We are looking literally at a worldwide economic collapse. Now, I know you can go out of this place today. You can go to the grocery store. You can go to Walmart. You can go to wherever you like to go. And the shelves are full. Very soon, that won't be true. Very soon. These signs that are predicted in Matthew 24 and the signs predicted here, we are in the verge of experiencing. Even as we speak. Then he continues, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross." But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now what you're hearing is the first sermon preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 37. I'm sorry, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? Until you come to a place in your life where you are cut to the heart. And where you say, what do I do? You're not ready for the Holy Spirit. As long as you're comfortable in your sin, you can be comfortable in the American church. The National Prayer Chapel has to get very, very uncomfortable with its sin. So that we live with any illusion that because we've done this right and this right, that means Jesus loves me and I'm okay. While we go out and live in whatever way we choose, whether it's going to the clubs, whether it's just being busy with busy work, whether it's whatever it is that is not of the Holy Spirit and is not to build the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Do you have a crowd? Do you have precious ones that you have won to Jesus? If you don't, it's because of sin in your life. And that sin has to be dealt with. The Lord wants to give us all a harvest. 
No one's going to go to heaven alone. But we're going to have to deal with the condition of our heart. And it means we're going to have to cultivate the conviction of the Spirit and not do anything that would begin to drain away that conviction of our soul. How many times have preached the gospel? We've closed the service. And suddenly there seems to be a rush to talk about everything foolish. Where we're going for, for, for dinner, where, where we're going to go this week, what we're going to do, what we're going to buy, sports, you name it. We talk about it because somehow we want to be a regular person. We want to be received. We want to be accepted. I tell you what, I no longer want to be received or accepted by this world. I want to be received and accepted by Jesus Christ. And that means cultivating in my soul conviction of sin. It is not something to push away. It's not something to hate. Conviction is something to love. It is something to nurture. Because that conviction, if given by the Holy Spirit, will grow in our soul. It will grow in our heart. We'll know we have to find an answer. And we have to have deliverance. And until we say, as these people did, brothers, what do I do? I've had very few people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm guilty. What do I do? Why? Because we're rich Americans. Comfortable on all the things of this culture. Comfortable with our lifestyle. Comfortable. Able to care for ourselves. Financially, emotionally, we can care for ourselves. When was the last time you spent a night weeping over your sin before God? Or when was the last night you spent weeping for the lost in your family? Where you simply would not let God rest because you saw family members, precious ones, headed straight toward hell. What would it take to stir your heart to finally say, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? Where do I go? How am I going to function? I have to have Jesus. See, it's not enough to have religion. It's not enough to have religion. We've got to have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always comes first. Could I put it this way? The Holy Spirit seems to come today on cat's feet. With small amounts of conviction. And if we push him away, he'll go away. And he'll leave us in our religion He'll leave us in our beliefs. He'll let us continue to walk the way we walk. Powerless. Words fall to the ground. No no presence of miracles. No presence of 
of healing, no presence of God. You know what? I can't live this way anymore. I can't live this way anymore. I said to one of you this week, I have to come and repent because my words have not been strong enough to call for repentance. God has to give me more power in in speaking and in living that when I speak, conviction would come. This wonderful man, Savernola, living in the 1400s, a Catholic priest, began to be convicted of his sin. Began to weep over his sin. Spending hours every day before God, reading the scriptures. All he could do is read the scriptures and pray and say, oh God, weeping. He'd go to the church where he was to preach. He couldn't even go in the door. He would fall down on the steps outside because he felt unworthy to go in, crying out to God. The first revival in the Christian church began to take place. One day, he was seated beside the pulpit, called the pulpit chair, He was so overcome. He was so in the presence of Jesus. That for five hours. He sat and prayed. And the whole congregation. Sat for five hours. Waiting for him to stand up and speak. Because they knew that when he stood up to speak. He would be speaking straight from the heart of God. And finally, when he stood and he began to preach, men and women trembled before God, fell on their faces, and began to repent. Soon the word began to spread about his ministry. And those who were angry about the rebukes they were receiving for their lifestyle began to denounce him. And finally, after much persecution, the Pope himself, Pope Alexander VI, issued an order that he be executed. And Savernola was strangled. And then his body was burned. And his ashes spread. But the fire of revival had been set. And Savernola, like Jesus, shed his blood for that revival. Freedom is not free. But could I say something? Sin is not free either. In this book, Pilgrim's Progress, we've been talking about 
the narrow path and the broad path. And we, of course, all recognize that the narrow path is the path of holiness and the broad path is the way of the world. But could I tell you a secret? In truth, the narrow path is the wide path. And the broad path is a tiny little road called prison. It looks broad to us from our perspective because we don't see the fullness of God's glory. In this world, we want everyone to approve of us. We want to be recognized. We want to be accomplished. We want to have our lifestyle. It's all the broad path that leads us to hell. The path that we call the narrow path or the highway of holiness or the king's highway, it's wide enough for all of us to walk. And it leads straight to the gate of the celestial city. And you have to make a decision. Are you going to allow God to cut your heart? Are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to come on cat's feet into your life and begin to grow a conviction of your sin? Or are you going to push him away? And are you going to say, you can't have entrance into my life? Because if you come into my life, you're going to spoil my deal. If you want to receive the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you three steps. They are not original with me. They come out of revival. Number one, a deep conviction of your personal depravity. Revival begins with that deep conviction of my sin. And today, if as you're sitting here, you're saying, you know, I can't really think of any sin. And I can't think of any real depravity in my life. And I don't see the vileness of myself. Then you are far, far from the kingdom of God. The closer you come to Jesus, the more vileness you'll see in your own heart. The more you come into his presence, the greater will be the conviction that there is absolutely no way for you to ever enter into the kingdom of God save by the grace of the blood of Jesus. That nothing you can do will earn you that place. That it is a gift of grace from first to last. That only by the power of the blood of Jesus can this vileness ever be wiped out of my heart. Only by the blood of Jesus can these sins ever be forgiven me. If you're living unconscious of that vileness of your heart today, you are far from Jesus and far from the kingdom of God. And you are subject to the judgments that are coming upon this earth. The second step. There must be an entire devotion of the whole man to God's service and a hearty obedience to his whole will. In other words, there has to come in your heart. As Jesus convicts you by his spirit of your sin and you pray through to victory 
and you know the presence of God, you give yourself utterly and completely into the hand of God. You don't hold back anything. You don't hold back friends. You don't hold back money. You don't hold back anything from him. You know your sin. You know the kind of person you are without the blessing of Jesus in your heart. You know that you would be as a Hitler if left unchecked by the Holy Ghost. If the restraining power of the Spirit was removed from your life, you know you would plunge into the depths of vileness. If you don't know that about yourself, then you will not take the next step and give yourself totally into the hand of God because that alone is the only place where victory is won over sin. And I want to say just one more quick thing about that. Some of us have in our experience sinned against God, repented, and then sinned against God, and then repented, and then sinned against God. Why? Because we're utterly self-absorbed. Because our focus is on our own life and our own trauma and our own needs and our own desires, not on Jesus. You can't overcome sin by focusing on sin. You overcome sin by focusing on Jesus. By putting your faith in him. By saying, Jesus, only you can deliver me. And I'm now standing by faith. I am delivered from this wickedness. And I hate this sin. That, and you name it. If it's alcohol, I hate this alcohol. In the name of Jesus, I have nothing to do with you. Devil, I renounce you in the name of Jesus. I am given into his hand. And I will serve Jesus alone. Until you take that position, you'll have no real victory over sin. There must be a hearty obedience. And I love when he says, not just obedience. It's not grudging obedience. Have you ever, with a child, corrected them? I can remember my daughters. They would finally do what I ask them to do sometimes, with a scowl on their face. It was grudging obedience. That's not what Jesus is looking for. He doesn't want obedience because he's bigger than us. He wants obedience to be heartfelt, eager, hearty obedience. He wants obedience that springs out of joy, being set free from this wickedness. The third step, simple and direct faith, expecting the Holy Spirit at every moment, looking for him at every moment, saying, Jesus, I'm standing by faith now for the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let us once more see the tongues of fire. Let us once more hear the roaring wind. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. So the daily position before God is Holy Spirit, I do not want to grieve you. Asking his direction, eagerly seeking his direction and seeking his infilling. Now listen, the Holy Spirit will not mix himself with me 
or with you. It means I move out and the Holy Spirit moves in. What a mess. I'd been away on a trip. I knew that when I came home, I was going to move my family to a new house, from an apartment to a house. We had just bought this house, and we were going to closing the week I came home. I got home and discovered that while we were out, the landlord had come and opened our house and had moved another family in with us in our apartment. I was horrified. Our belongings were all mixed together. You couldn't walk through the house. I should have gone immediately and gotten an attorney and sued, but I didn't. Instead, I got some friends, and we spent several days sorting out what was mine and what was theirs, finally separating everything out, and then went to closing while we stayed in a motel. And then the landlord would not give us our security deposit back because the other family was there and they couldn't inspect the house. I walked away from that and I said, never again. Can you imagine the mess if the Holy Spirit moved in with you when your heart is filled with sin? How could you ever untangle that mess? No. He asks us to move out. That he could move in. Are you ready for the Holy Spirit to move into your life? Or is there a work that the Holy Spirit is asking for to clean up the house and move out? Are you ready for the Holy Spirit? Almighty God, I come asking today that you would cut our hearts, that you would uncover any sin that has not been confessed and any way that stands in opposition to your presence and to your Holy Spirit. I'm asking that this work would be done now. Come Holy Spirit with your convicting power. Meet us today, Holy Spirit of the living God. Thank you, Lord.
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Oh, His glory.